your tutorial asynchronous material is available for viewing for the NB28 lecture. So we have a clicker question. Okay, so what do we have here? 47-year-old man experiencing sharp jabs of searing pain emanating from the back of the tongue and adjacent throat. The bursts of pain were initially infrequent. And you find that even eating, talk, eating or talking often provoked the episodes. He awoke sometimes with the intense jabs of pain and a sensation feeling like a knife wound. So if we think of our trigeminal nerve, what are we thinking of there? Is that an option? We've got pain here. But this would be more likely to be sensory face. So I don't think that would be an option. Facial? No, because most probably what, that would be what special sensory. Our vagus? Sensory of the larynx? Hypoglossal? We've got our somatic motor innovation. So the correct option would be, as 64% of you have chosen, the glossopharyngeal. So we have a case here of glossopharyngeal neuralgia. So I think you may have discussed previously trigeminal neuralgia. And let's just open this question first before we go further. Are you able to categorize the disease?
All right. So a scattering of responses. So in most cases, you find that the, these kind of neuralgias are caused by nearby blood vessels. So we can have vascular as an option. But a lot of the time, we don't know what the reason is. So idiopathic is also a correct answer choice. So you can have aberrant branches of Ica or Pica in this case, or a nearby tumor in the cerebellar pontine angle. So all of these things can end up with us having neuralgias. So as I said, similar to our trigeminal neuralgia, pain is tied to stimulation of trigger points. We had our patient where they eat, just eating, doing normal activities, caused them pain. So we're going to go through our object objectives now. I hope you noted your uh, reading. So the specific chapter in the essential neuroscience text. So let's review the relation between the stimulus delivered to an excitable cell, the associated graded electrical response, and how now we convert this stimuli to responses consisting of changes of conductance and our membrane potential. So what are our stimulus characteristics? So if we look at our sensory receptor or dendrite here, so we orient ourselves to the diagram, we see that the stimuli, so the stimuli is increasing or decreasing depending on how you want to look at it. So A is a higher stimulus, B is a medium stimulus, and C is a lower stimulus. So as we increase our stimulus, we have an increased response. And our receptive endings can now respond electrically depending on the stimulus. So the response there is graded depending on the intensity of the stimulus. And we can look at our primary afferents. So if we have touch, sound, light, etc., as a stimulus. And in other neurons, we use chemical messengers as our stimulus. It's important to note that in our sensory receptors, we call these potentials our receptor potentials. But when we're in our neurons and we're releasing our chemicals, these are postsynaptic potentials. So our ion channels react to our stimuli. As I said, we have an increase or decrease depending on how you look at it. So of our ionic flux depending on the intensity of the stimulus delivered. Now let's look at the concept of our electrical signals spreading from their sites of origin with decrement. So governed by something called our length constant. So we already discussed the time constant. Now we're moving on to the length constant. And we're going to relate the electrical properties to our cable-like structures such as our, now that we're obviously we're discussing our nervous system, our dendrites and our axons and their respective length constants. So these potentials that I discussed are, they degrade essentially. So the further you move 
So again, in this diagram, we have an arrow moving from A through to C. And the further you are away from the site of the stimulus, the initiation of the stimulus, we see that the response decreases or becomes smaller. So there we have our decrement. So we're growing smaller with the distance from the initiation site. So let's have a drinking game. So I'd like to invite three members of the audience to come up. Three volunteers, please. No alcoholic beverages are involved. It's too early for that. Thank you very much. Good morning. What's your name? Amar. Amar. Okay, thank you. Kevin. Kevin, thank you. Jacqueline, thank you. Okay. So, I'm going to take... Okay, well, then you need some rehydration. There you go, Amar, Kevin, Jacqueline. And a straw for you. One for you. And one for you, Jacqueline. All right. Any preference on flavor? Okay, it's kiwi, strawberry, or apple? Apple for you. Let's hope it doesn't. Now, let me make sure that I pull them all the same. Okay, we don't want to be here all morning, so I'll just fill it to that much. Jacqueline, flavor for you? Doesn't matter, okay. About the same. Nope, nope, nope. Need to make it even. All right. Thank you, Emma. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So, on three, we want you to consume your lovely beverage. One, two, three. Let's see who finishes first. Amar's first is well rehydrated. Something happening, Kevin, there? What's wrong? Jacqueline? <laughs> oh! Okay, so we'll give up on you. You can take the cup and you can have that. Thank you very much, guys. So we'll get to the rationale behind that de demonstration. <laughs> no, I tried to... I, my aim was to use that demonstration to 
try and help us or help me describe the length constant to you. Now, essentially, our length constant depends on a couple of parameters here. Our intracellular resistance and our membrane resistance. So, Kevin's straw had some holes in it. So the membrane wasn't very resistant. So the greater the membrane resistance, the longer our length constant. So therefore, he wasn't able to consume his beverage very easily. Jacqueline, what happened to Jacqueline's straw? There was a higher intracellular resistance. There was a blockage, and that obstructed her from consuming her beverage. So the greater our length constant, the further our signal can travel along our dendrite or axon without degrading too much. And specifically, the length constant is the distance over which a graded electrical potential decays to 37% of its original or maximal amplitude. Okay? So the longer the length constant, that's the further you can travel or the graded potential can travel along the dendrite or axon before degrading to 37%. So we have our graded potential, and now we want to have the process of signal transduction. So the whole point is you have a chemical signal or some kind of sensory stimulus, as we discussed, touch, pressure, and we want to turn that into an electrical signal. Reminding again, our sensory receptors express our receptor potentials and our neurons, our postsynaptic potentials. So for our signal transduction, we have a variable amplitude system. Our greater potentials are slow. They don't depend on voltage-gated channels. They use ion channels and our propagation is controlled by our cable properties that we discuss. So when our membrane voltage now deviates from rest, we can now have our action potentials. So let's describe our all or none response, our depolarization, the thresholds for excitation and the physical features determining what's happening in what they call our trigger zone in the neurons. So we have our receptor potential, postsynaptic potentials, our graded potentials, so all meaning the same thing, produce our stimuli, and we, we want to convert that to our electrical signal, as I said, Depending on the magnitude, you can then have your action potential. That is providing this degraded potential has not degraded too much by the time it gets to that specific initiation zone. So our special axonal trigger zone is where we can 
activate our action potential. So in this graph, we see different graded potentials being stimulated. And just at that magic point, there's been enough of a signal at the initiation zone to trigger our action potential. So our action potentials are all or none. So there's no degrading there. It's just an all or none action. Just reminding ourselves of our different morphotypes. And we see our initiation zones at the points in our diagram. So just to orient yourself, if you see a different morphotype, you can be aware as to the location of the initiation zone. So we express our initiation zone. Now this is where we find our voltage-gated channels, specifically the sodium channels. And as I said, there's a particular threshold that has to be reached before these channels open and cause the action potential. Question. Okay, a lot of you gone for C. What is C? Right, so what did we say was there? What morphotype is this? Well, it's labeled our multipolar neuron, our more likely to be our motor neuron. So at the axon hillock, that's where we have our initiation zone. If you look back at the previous diagram, this is actually the initiation zone. So C is incorrect. It's D. Why? Because the question asks you for the origin of the neuronal graded potential. And we said that's also known as our postsynaptic potential when we're dealing with our neurons that are not our sensory neurons. So here our dendrites, so that's where we have our origin of our graded potentials. Our graded potentials now have to use the ion channels and traverse the dendrites, using, hoping that our cable properties are intact. So our length constant being our 37, where the length that our graded potential will travel along our dendrite before degrading to 37%. 
and providing that the greater potential is strong enough, it can get to the initiation zone, pop the voltage-gated sodium channels open, and initiate the all or none action potential. And of course, A was our presynaptic terminal. E, specifically well within the soma there. Okay. Let's now have a look at the influx, the influence of the influx of our sodium ions. So essentially, we're going to look at our action potential. So what's happening with the sodium ions, the potassium ions, depolarization, repolarization. So we're going to remind ourselves of all those things because I'm sure you've done them in physiology, but they do come back now. We need to remind ourselves of them in our neuroscience because we're thinking of our neuronal transmission. And we need to recognize our different time courses and changes that are happening. So our ionic basis of our action potentials, I already mentioned our sodium channels, our voltage-gated sodium channels that open up in the first stage of our action potential. So we reach threshold, voltage-gated sodium channels open, and the action potential starts to rise. So the voltage changes from the resting membrane potential here, just above minus 60 millivolts, and it's trying to climb up to the equilibrium potential of sodium. However, while those channels have opened, potassium voltage-gated potassium channels are opening slowly. So we have our, if I move to the next slide, so our sodium channels for our rising phase, we have an overshoot. And then our falling phase, our potassium, the sodium channels start to close. The voltage-gated channels are now fully activated, the potassium voltage-gated channels, sorry, fully activated and now bringing our action potential or the membrane potential back to rest so that we can initiate a subsequent action potential. So we need to essentially, with, with every process, there's a start signal and there's a stop signal. And we see a slight overshoot with our after hyperpolarization. So let's have a look at some structural features and think about our absolute and relative refractory periods. <coughs> Excuse me. So our voltage-gated channels, they have structural conservation. So we have four identical subunits which come together to form a central pore. Each subunit has six membrane-spanning domains, and we have our domains conferring our voltage. So we have our voltage sensitivity here in blue, and our pore loop indicating our ion selectivity. We discussed that we had to have a stop a start signal and a stop signal. So, of course, we need to have inactivation of our channels, and we're going to look specifically 
at the sodium channels. So most channels, essentially, you have just they open and close. But the sodium channels, as you know, they have a, well, a plug or an activation ball, which can also come into play. So once the inactivation ball is in position, then no ions can pass. So initially, we see that the sodium channel is open. And, well, sorry, the sodium channel is closed. It's open on the, on the side where the, an the ions come through. And when activated, sodium can flow through nicely and easily. The ball is out of the way, so everything is activated. So the channel is activated. But even though the channel is open here, in the last part of the diagram, the inactivation ball plugs the channel. So the channel is open, but no ions can pass. And that relates to our absolute refractive period and our relative refractive period. So the absolute period is the point where all sodium channels are inactivated. So nothing can pass, the channels are closed, no sodium can flow through. But in the relative refractory period, some channels have reset themselves. So there is a possibility that should there be some form of stimulation take place, there could be an action potential initiated. So there's a possibility in the refractory stage or the relative stage that you could have an action potential. But there's no, there's no chance of this happening in the absolute refractive period, so the ARP. Now let's try to localize the voltage-gated channels. So we're looking again at our unmyelinated and our myelinated axons. And think about how the impulses are propagated in these axons and relate our conduction velocity and our axonal diameter. So we're just going to remind ourselves about that. So what's the distribution of our voltage-gated channels? In our unmyelinated axon, we see a sparse distribution. So in the impulse initiation zone, we have a nice gathering of our so voltage-gated sodium channels in both types of axon, unmyelinated and myelinated. However, the sparse distribution of the various voltage-gated channels in the unmyelinated axon means that we have a slower propagation of our action potential because there's more like a, a domino effect in terms of activating or opening our voltage-gated channels along the unmyelinated axon. And also, we already discussed the various, the other properties in terms of when, when we compare our myelin, myelinated axon versus our unmyelinated axon and how myelination can improve the propagation of our action potentials. So now when we add our myelin, 
I alluded to the fact that myelin allowed us to group or congregate our voltage-gated channels. So now we see a dense distribution of voltage-gated channels in between our myelin sheaths, so at our nodes of Ronvier. And then we look at our key down here. So we have our, our voltage-gated sodium channels, potassium channels, and calcium channels, calcium specifically at the terminal. We have our nodal in the dark blue and paranodal, juxtaparanodal regions. So we initially we have our sodium channels being activated at the node. And our action potential can now move swiftly based on the properties that we discussed through the myelinated portion of the axon and then be re-energized somewhat as it hits a, a dense distribution, a dense population of sodium channels at the node. So this is where we have our saltatory effect of our action potential. So again, just showing in a different way. Our action potential moves slowly, so we have action potential going along on the unmyelinated axon, whereas when we have our myelinated axon, we can skip along at our nodals, at our, at our nodes with our action potential and making everything faster. We've increased our membrane resistance, we've decreased our conductance, so there's no leakage of our current through the myelinated areas. We only want to have our channels open or any current flowing at these specific points. And all of that makes everything flow much faster. And as we discussed earl earlier in this session, we introduced our concept of our length constant. So our high intracellular resistance, which we see in our, in our smaller diameter axons, leads to a short length constant. But if we increase our diameter, we have a low intracellular resistance, so we increase our length constant. Now let's think about our action potential and the blocking effects of lignocaine. Again, orient ourselves to the diagram. So our blue trace is our, act are our action potentials in an afferent following mus muscle stretch. So here we have the stretch, and then we see some action potentials being fired. However, if we look at V, we see there is an absence of any action potentials and because at this little at the asterisk we've introduced lignocaine so we've blocked our voltage gated sodium channels we're still able to have our graded potentials but they're not able to convert into action potentials because we've blocked the voltage gated sodium channels question
Okay? So here we're thinking about our primary somatosensory afferents. So, of course, these are our pseudo-unipolar morphotypes. And I just wanted to take a step back. So I think I, I, I labored the sodium channels and just, look, just mentioned the potassium and the calcium channels. So I wanted to take a step back. So we also have, it's important to note that paranodally, juxtaparanodally, and at our terminal, we have our potassium channels. So when we think about our action potentials, what happens when we have our potassium channels or our voltage-gated potassium channels opening? We're terminating our action potential. So it's important that we have no backflow of our action potential. So there's a purpose for our potassium channels there. The high concentration of calcium channels at the terminal is important for release of our neurotransmitter or chemical substance. And we're going to go into exactly how neurotransmitters are released in subsequent lectures. Or you may, if you've watched the videos already, you have some insight into that. Okay, so just an explanation for that question. Neuronal morphotype, pseudo-unipolar. We see our ganglion here. And in this instance, our ganglion makes a connection with, a, with our spinal dorsal root ganglia, so transmitting our pain sensations when the cranial nerve was activated. Or essentially, it was overexcitation or random excitation. So just aberrant excitation of the neuron causing pain, sensation.
Okay. A lot of you going for over-the-counter pain control and some lidocaine. Not the correct answer choices. So remember this person has glossopharyngeal neuralgia. So there's hyper-excitability of our neurons. Our over-the-counter pain control is usually what? What type of NSAID, so anti-inflammatory type medications. We did discuss that our lidocaine can block our voltage-gated channels. We can stop our action potentials. However, how long is the act? Yes? So what, what choice did you use? Shall we go through the answer choices before we get to that discussion? Yeah? So our lidocaine will do what? It will not only, it's going to block our voltage-gated channels everywhere. You're going to have a local anesthetic effect. You're going to affect your somatosense, like all your se other senses as well. Well, psychotherapy, well, there's something quite real happening here. And we don't want to affect our, if you want to say, mental, well, not, not mental, but we know that if you, morphine, anti, antidepressant drugs, you know, you can kind of knock the person out in that sense. So they, what's the word I'm looking for? But morphine, these kind of drugs make you sleepy, essentially. So as your colleague was discussing at the back, the anti-seizure drugs are the drugs that we, you would use as the initial treatment strategy. So we're talking about the actual treatment because these drugs give a longer action so they can block the channel and what they do is they block the sodium channel preferentially when it's in its inactivated state. So we do suppress our trains of our action potentials. It's used, it acts as a use dependent, it's a use dependent medication and as I mentioned compared to things like lidocaine we block our pain but not our normal sensation. So that's why we use these drugs for the treatment of the pain. So the question asked about the actual treatment for the, for the, pain, for the um, case. Yes? Mm -hmm. But the NSAIDs are usually, as we discussed, for our anti-inflammatory 
type pain. And the, this, these patients are really not going to get a lot of benefit from the NSAIDs because of the hyperexcitability that is happening in these neurons. It is really down to the sodium channel transmission. So it's hyperexcitability, transmission, multiple action potentials that are causing the pain. Okay. No. So you do need to see your doctor. And then, and then they'll discuss. And then you'll have, so you have the initial. So, and it said, look, prescribed initial treatment strategy as well. Yeah? Okay, so that was the last question. We finished a bit early, so come back on the hour.